0: Morning again. Guess what book we're going to be in? What, we'll say that again? Ecclesiastes. So take your Bible, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in chapter 9 as we progress through our journey through this text, as we have been for the last several weeks. We're coming to an end in the next two or three weeks. And if you've been here for any second of this teaching series throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, which deals with a lot of different things like meaninglessness, a purposeless life, or finding wisdom? Some of us may ask as we enter into the Christmas season, why, how in the world does Ecclesiastes apply to this? Because during Christmas, you're supposed to have Christmas flowers, Christmas candles, kiss Christmas songs, and you're supposed to talk about Christmas passages of Scripture, correct? So what in the world... Does Ecclesiastes have to do with Christmas? And my encouragement to you is wait and see, okay? Because we're going to be wrestling through that in the next few minutes and make the applicable adjustments and connections. But as we struggle through this text, for all of us, hopefully for you and for me specifically, because I know I've dealt with this, this is a challenging book to work through. Because as we walk through this text, there are three themes we see over and over again. I'm going to take about 45 seconds to catch you up. The book of Ecclesiastes was written by either King Solomon or someone very close to him. King Solomon was the most powerful, most wealthy, most influential, most intelligent person perhaps in the Old Testament as a whole. He had power. He had people. He had prestige. And the Bible says he was wise beyond anyone. But in that wisdom, in that power, in that influence, in that wealth, he gets to the end of his life and he says it was all meaningless. And the reason was is that he chose to live life under the sun. Now, there are three phrases we see throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. One is the phrase, when we live life under the sun, it's meaningless, meaningless, what, church? Everything is meaningless. And so, living life under the sun, the second phrase we see over and over again, means a manward way of living. And what Solomon or the person writing about Solomon is saying over and over again is that don't live life under the sun, live life under heaven, which is in Godward direction. And the way we do that, is through developing wisdom. Now, one thing he's mentioning throughout the course of this text is he's basically giving us advice about what not to do because he's already done that. Y'all have done advice like that before, right? You're going to have Christmas dinner perhaps in a few weeks. You just had Thanksgiving dinner. And maybe there was that one casserole that tasted like dirt. And you're like, don't eat that. It's terrible. But there's something deep inside of you. It's like, I've got to taste that. You know what I mean? And that's what he's saying. Don't do these things because I've done them. We want you to live life under the heavens, under what God would have you to do. So this morning we transition a little bit because we've been developing this theme of how we live in wisdom, what we need to look out for, what worship is appropriate, and we've learned that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all understanding from Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The same guy wrote those Ecclesiastes in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. And basically he's saying is that when God is the center of our universe, we develop wisdom even when wisdom has its limits. But we come to chapter 9 and he begins to deal with something called definite or assurance. Now, I, let's, just, let's just talk for a moment, okay? We need to do some therapy, okay? A little group therapy this morning. I am a broken-hearted Georgia Bulldog fan this morning, okay? And I felt like all week long. Uh, we were going to lose, I felt like, two or three touchdowns. I would like to keep it close. we got a couple of Alabama people here. One of our guys is in the sound booth. Is an Alabama guy. And the last thing you want to do is to offend the Alabama guy that's got in control of your mic. So we're not. We're just going to say congratulations. But I really dislike it. So here's the thing. Towards the game, man, it's like there's this, man, y'all with me on this, right? Y'all watch this, right? It's like there's hope, there's hope, there's hope, there's hope, there's hope, there's hope. There's hope. It's like, Ah! And I come to realize the only hope that springs eternal is Jesus, and therefore we're here this morning to celebrate the most definite thing in life. Amen? Amen. All right, good. All you Alabama people need to agree with that, or else you're not Christian. And so here's the thing it would be great to deal with a life of definite, wouldn't it? You definitely knew what was going to happen. To be able to control every molecule in your life, to know what's going to happen next. And this morning, we wrestle with this idea of those things we can't control. Those things that are definites that we may or may not like. I asked several people this morning as they walked in and you got all your Christmas shopping done. Some of you were like, "No, no I haven't started, no I'm halfway done." And then when somebody says, "Well, I'm done." I said, "Oh, you but you haven't got my list yet. So you're not." And so one of those things about Christmas is it becoming become a very stressful time. Agreed? You've got about the decorations, you have to deal with the holiday travel perhaps, maybe what you're going to eat, but probably the most stressful thing is what you're going to buy. When we think about what we're going to buy, we've got to buy gifts to please the people in our lives, but then we've got to think about the money we will spend, the money we can't spend, the money we shouldn't spend, and then you've got to buy that weird gift for the person you don't even know that well. Maybe it's an office pool, maybe it's, it's some kind of a secret Santa thing, you pick the person that's only been there three days, and you're like, I don't even know his name yet. That was his name? And now you've got to find out something to buy for them, and it's just stressful, right? I'm not a good gift giver. I'm just going to be straight up with you guys. I'm a kind of person that's like I don't think we should give gifts. I think we should gather together for a meal, say Merry Christmas and I'm going to take the money I would have spent on everybody else and buy me something really nice. That's kind of how I feel. Call it selfish, I don't care. That's how I roll. But when my wife got and I got together, she is a person who puts great thought and great concern and great, you know, just effort into buying gifts. And so we got together, we celebrated our first catch, you know, your first Christmas together while you're dating. And that's always something simple and nice, or maybe you go overboard. But as the relationship progressed and we knew we were going to get married, I went and visited her one Christmas, and I um, stopped on the mall on the way in. Now she has prepared for weeks, and I mean, she's got it set up, and each package neatly wrapped. And I thought, well, I'll just be the jokey chip, and I'll run to the mall, and I bought her like a certain this and a certain that. And I went to my truck and I had a black garbage bag, and I dumped it all, put a ribbon around it, and said, "Ha ha, funny you got." You. I mean, it was really expensive stuff, and she thought it was funny. Ha, that's great, Merry Christmas! You know, we're still in La La Land, love each other. The next year, we're two months from getting married at this point. And so I go to see her, I stop by the mall, go in the mall, buy certain things, and I put them in the black garbage bag, tied it up again. I had forgot I'd done that the year before. And the problem is I bought her the exact same stuff, just in different colors. And I give it to her, and she has all her stuff, like I open it, nice stuff and all this stuff, and she opens her stuff up, and she's like, ha ha, Merry Christmas. And it's like, why are you mad, baby? What do I do? I know what I did now, but some of us put great thought and great detail into what we buy when we got married. A friend of mine who i would become really close with came over to the house for lunch, dinner one night. And Sarah Beth says, we need to buy him a gift. And my thought was, and I thought this was guy code, so help me out here, Chris. Guys don't buy guys gifts. Would we agree on that, men? Right? Amen. Are we good with that, fellas? Oh, that, okay. good. Sarah Beth's like, you got to buy him a gift. So I was like, no, this is guy code. We don't, dudes don't buy dudes gifts typically, right? Unless you're related to them. He knocks at the door. He's standing there with a beautiful package. I'm like, what's up, Jason? Come on in. You must have got that from my wife. No, this is for you, bro. Dang it. (laughs) I open it up. (laughs) I pull it out, and I'm a Georgia fan, and he had put great thought into this. It was a big Georgia bulldog. In a snow globe, he had probably spent 50 bucks on it, it seemed, like. it seemed like that. It was nice. And I'm like, wow, this is great. This will great in my office. Dang it. Merry Christmas, man. This is what we got to eat. I didn't have anything for him. Because the definite guy coach says, don't buy another guy a gift, right? There's no definite, And when we think about life, there's no definites. So when we read Scripture, As we walk this journey together, what are some definites we can deal with? Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1. Notice what it says here. Really cool text here. I love this. And this launches everything that we're going to be dealing with. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise... And what we do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. Let's stop here because we really got to understand this verse. This springs, boards, everything else that we do. Let's go. He's First of all, he says, so I reflected. He's thinking back on all of this. All of this means all of the wisdom, all of the under the sun living, all of the under the heavens living, and all of the meaningless stuff in life. He's reflecting back on everything that he's written in the first eight chapters. And then he says this, I concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are all in God's hands. Now, when you read the Old Testament, to be in God's hands is a good thing. That's where you want to be. Would y'all agree on that? Even New Testament people, being in God's hands is great. He is benevolent, He is good, He has concern for you, you are valued. But in this instance, there's some fear and trembling that goes along with what the author says. How do you get that? Read the next phrase here. He says this But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them and this is his point, when you transition, when I transition from one life to the next, when you close your eyes and take your last breath, and then you open your eyes and you're in eternity, and you take your next breath, what he's saying is you have no idea when you're living life under the sun whether there is a love waiting for you or there is a hate waiting for you. You get that? That's an important place to to be here for a moment, because He's saying the wise, the guys that do good things, the guys that are righteous, all that stuff, he's saying when you die, you're still not definite. In fact, he's saying this, that the only definite thing humanity can deal with is that one day, you, me, and everyone else is going to die. Now, this is a great Christmas topic, right? One day, everyone kicks the bucket. So the question is in this definite of death, how do we maneuver? How do we deal with that? He goes on to write a few more phrases here, and we're going to go through verse 6, and I want you to read this quickly with me. He says, All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices, meaning the religious, and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. You see that? He says this, the same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil and their madness in their hearts while they live and afterward they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Now think through that one for a moment. I like lions. Lions are cool. My son and I have been watching some documentaries on some lions. And and, and when you look at a lion and maybe look it up and see how big that lion is, or even in the wild and it's compared to maybe something smaller, lions are awesome, are they not? Huge, man, man, big teeth. And when somebody walks out with a lion, the lion's going to win, right? Everything in the wilderness, everything in the wild, everything on the savannah submits to the lion. But when that lion is dead, your yapping chihuahua is more powerful. Now think through that for a moment. Now read a little further. For the living know they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward. And even their name is what? Forgotten. That's sad, isn't it? Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens. What? Under the sun. Now, so here's the point. The definite of life is that death is going to happen. And the thing is, specifically during the holiday season, when we deal and think through that death is going to happen, there are several things that go through our minds because for some of us in this room, death is something we are scared of, right? Not only that, maybe it's the death of someone we love that we fear. It controls a lot of us in this room, right? Like I remember when I became a father, the reality that I had subhumans around me, you know, little humans, scared me to death. Still scares me. And so, this whole thing that we struggle with, the fear that it brings, the anxiety it brings, but not just that, it's the grieving of those who may have already gone, right? And it always seems to bubble up during the holiday time. That's a definite. And that's not fun to talk about. But it is a stark reality in all of our lives. So he goes on to say this, how do, we, how do we maneuver through this definite of death? So as discouraged and depressed as you are right now, let's make it worse, okay? <laughs> Merry Christmas. I'm a giver. See, I give good gifts. All right, verse 11. Let's go down there. Skip down there. Notice what happens here. Because I want you to read a little further. Another definite here. Verse 11, I have seen something under the sun. Get that phrase there, right? The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Now, let's let's leave that verse on the screen for a moment. Look at it with me. Notice what he says. The race, the person that always wins, is not always the fastest. Would you agree on that? In any type of competition or any type of place where you're trying to climb a ladder, there seems to be someone who's not as competent, not as good, not as, not as fast, that sometimes wins, right? Y'all have seen that happen a million times. We've seen it in the Olympics where other runners will cheat to win. We've seen it to where boxing matches have been fixed. We've seen it to where bribery happens. And the thing is, is that life just isn't fair. And that is a definite that we can, we can depend on right there, that life Is not fair? That you and I, as we encounter people, as we encounter every minute of our life, that things that we have to realize and understand is that fairness is not happening. Now, we've dealt with this before throughout this text in the book of Ecclesiastes, but it's important to be mindful of that, even for the mature Christian, because there are times and things that happen where we look at our lives and go, man, that just is not fair. God, I've tried to do the right thing here. And it's not working out. Y'all been there before? Or God, I'm struggling through this, and it doesn't seem to be fair. Listen to me. In the environment, in the culture, whatever you want to call it that we live in, the thing that Solomon, the thing that the wisest people in the the world realize is, life isn't fair. The sooner we recognize that, the better we are. There's another facet, another definite here. though. Read the next verse. Get this. Verse 12, moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. A fish, as fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. And as I read that verse, the thing that I think of is just sitting on the beach at St. Simon's Island watching the shrimp boats go by with these huge nets going behind them. And the thing I thought of was a shrimp can't control whether it's are going to get caught in a net or not, right? It just happens. Just like you and I can't control things. And that's the other definite. You and I aren't in control, are we? And there are many of us in this room, including your pastor, that I like to control my own little universe. Are you all with me on that? Believe it or not, I have every minute, every hour scheduled almost every day. And Monday morning at about 8 o'clock, it starts off really well. But about 8.15, it's all up in the air. You all been there before? We just can't control things. We can't control the, the earthquake in Anchorage this past week. We couldn't control the outcome of a ball game last night. We can't control the tornado that hit Illinois this morning. We can't control anything. We can't control our, who our mama is, who our daddy is. We can't control the color of our skin, the color of our hair, the color of our eyes. We can't control that stuff. We can diet, right? But in reality, it's still what it is. We can't control things. We try really hard. Not only is Christmas that time of the year for gift giving, it's also that time of the year for card sending. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? And it's always fascinating to me to go to the mailbox and see if there's a Christmas card in there. And it always seems to be a picture of this perfect family. You know what I mean, right? And all of us have that friend who sent you a Christmas card, and they are so far ahead of the game that that Christmas card came on the day after Thanksgiving. And you're like, curses, you know, you just hate that person because their Christmas card is perfect. And I know with the busyness of life, it's like one of the more stressful times because you got to get your Christmas card printed, you got to get them stuffed, addressed, stamped, sent. And for most of us, we're sending it out like January 8th, and oh, sorry, Merry Christmas, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. I told my wife years ago, I was like, we need to do a year card. And she goes, what do you mean by that? I said, it's, when the, it's when Caroline was a baby. I said, we need to get, you know, I'll dress up like Fourth of July. You be the Easter Bunny. Cade can be somebody from Halloween. Caroline can be the New Year's Eve baby. And it's like, happy, happy year. And send it like September. And then you're just covered, right? Y'all, y'all with me on that? Because it gets frustrating. You get these Christmas cards from people, and they're perfect. It's the perfect family. I mean, the dogs are in there, and the dogs are even smiling. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Some of you people will get your picture made with your dog. But who looks better? You know, know, it's crazy how perfect that thing is. But what we don't realize, it took 10,000 clips to make that picture perfect, right? And if you were able to peel back that picture, you would see every issue, every problem, all the drama, even getting the hair and the makeup ready and the outfits to match, all that stuff, right? Here's the truth. Here's the truth. The reason we love pictures is because it's a moment in time we can control. Right? But in reality, we control nothing. That's a definite. So that leads us to this question. How in the world do we live a life where we're so out of control, where it isn't fair, and we know we're going to die? How do we do it? The really easy answer to this is by grace. And What I want to do right now is just I want, to, I want to direct your attention to Luke chapter 1. We're going to try to answer this question and try to bring it to a conclusion by going back to Ecclesiastes. But in Luke chapter 1 starting in verse 46, one of my favorite passages in the Nativity narrative. And it's Mary and, it's, and basically she's singing a hymn of praise to the Lord. Now, we got to remember who Mary was. She was a 15-, 14-year-old girl, grew up in an impoverished home, uh, not very much to her family's name either. Um, She was a virgin, and God comes to her and says, guess what, you're pregnant. None of this makes sense, right? None of this makes sense for us 2,000 years later. None of this makes sense for her 2,000 years ago. And after she experienced God's blessing and God's choosing of her to deliver the Christ child, to deliver our hope, she breaks out in praise, and this is what she sings, and I love this. And Mary said in verse 46, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has been mindful of of the humble state of His servant from now on. All generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And here's the deal. We look at life and we say, it's not fair. How many times have y'all yelled that to God? God, this just isn't fair. This just isn't right. And everything in Mary's life could have pointed in that direction. God, this isn't fair. I know there's a blessing here. I know there's a Messiah. But I am a 14-year-old broke girl who's pregnant and my name is ruined, God. This isn't fair. Y'all ever thought about it from that perspective? Think about the whispers from the old ladies in the city of Nazareth years as Jesus walks around as a toddler. Think about what it was like to go to the well, to dip the well into the pool of water, and everybody look at Mary and whisper, she had that baby and she wasn't supposed to. Think about what it was like for her and Joseph to go to temple every week. And as they walked into the temple, well, here comes the liars, here comes the duped guy who thought his wife really was pregnant with God's baby. Think about that for a moment. And this is what you need to get. And I want you to go back. For the mighty one, notice what it says in verse 49. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Here's the lesson that she learned, and here's what we need to take from that as we come to this candle this morning and we say, Christ brings peace. Here's the peace is that Christ, get this, transcends fairness. He goes way beyond that. You see, fairness died in the Garden of Eden, and what Christ came to do is, I don't care if it's fair or not, I'm going to take this broke girl and bring about the king of the universe. Instead of being born in a palace with money, with power, with prestige, I'm going to use the lowliest and the most unlikely to bring about my plan. And more than that, and here's where fairness really gets blown to pieces, I'm going to take sinners like the people who attended River Hills Church this morning and say, you are valued, you are loved, and I'll offer you peace when it's not fair. You get that? That's Christ transcending Fairness. But then it goes deeper. Read a little further with me. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as He promised our ancestors. Here's the point. When we can't control life, we also have to remember that Christ can't be controlled either and the things that control us. I want you to think about that. We try to control things, but think about what controls us, right? Our temptations, the people, circumstances. Here's what's beautiful about the gospel. Is that temptation, circumstances, and other people can't hold Jesus down? He, doesn't, he is not controllable. And so in the end, Christ transcends fairness. Christ can't be controlled. Christ brings peace. And that's a blessing for us. Because when we go back to Ecclesiastes, flip back over there, the definites that the author's saying is you're going to die, and that can bring about a great amount of fear, right? Others are going to die. That can cause an extreme amount of anxiety. Where you're going to grieve over those that have passed on, and that can put you in a depressed state. And not only that, this isn't going to be fair for you. You can't control it. And so Jesus gives the answer, and the author in Ecclesiastes, that we're going to see in two weeks, is pointing at him. He's saying, look, I'm going to transcend all this fairness. I'm going to not be controlled and bring you peace. Isn't that good? But we have to come to that place where we accept it. But that still begs the question, Chip, okay, that's an under the heavens way of living, and I want to do that, but I'm living life now and I'm dealing with the death, I'm dealing with the grief, I'm dealing with the fear, I'm dealing with it not being fair, I'm wrestling with those things, I'm dealing with this whole concept of being controlled or not controlling these things. How do I live my life now, right? That's what we really want to know, right? How do I struggle through this? Let's go to verse 7, chapter 9, and I want you to get what he says here. We're going to get on this really quick, but I, this is so important. Dance with So just take my word for it. As we're digging deeper into this text of scripture, he's saying basically this in relationships because not everybody's gonna get married, and that's okay. I want you to know that the most powerful, most popular person to ever walk the face of the planet, never had a date, his name was Jesus, and it's okay to be single. It's a blessing to be single. What I want you to understand here is in the midst of what he's talking about, is that love your love your wife basically interpreted and applied is saying Love people without conditions. You get that? When we're able to do that, we become more like Christ. Third thing is simply this really huge application here. Verse 10. And then we're going to go back up and deal with joy one more time. I want you to notice what he says. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it. Neither working nor planning nor knowledge, nor wisdom. What he's saying here is this. Live your life as worship. Honor God with your life and what you do. In all the tasks of your life, whether you hate your job or not, whether you enjoy parenting or not, whether you enjoy just talking with other people at a local coffee shop, here's what the deal is. Live life as worship. Honor God with what you do. That is the greatest act of worship. Worship is not simply singing. It's living. But I really want to hone in for a moment on this joy aspect because when we hold this whole concept of joy out to the church and out to anybody for that matter, joy and peace for many of us can be very situational, right? I'm happy here but not happy there. Or it can be very seasonal. This is the most wonderful time of the year. This is what the psalm says, right? So it must be true. But for many people it is not. And what I want you to understand here is that the joy of the Lord is sanctifying. And what I mean by that, and this is a big biblical word, joy is sanctifying. The word sanctifying means to be set apart or to become like Christ or growing in your relationship with God. The more you're growing, the more you're knowing Christ, the more joyful it is. You follow me on that? So situational and seasonal aren't as important. It's Jesus. You follow that? Because he's transcending fairness. He can't be controlled, and he's bringing peace. And at the end of the day, that last application of saying, then my life can be a point of worship in how I live and what I do is a moment of worship. It's it's how I live. And so at the end of each one of these messages throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, we've given you a homework assignment. So you're ready for this week's assignment, right? Your homework assignment this week is really simple. What in our lives do I need to do to honor God? How can we honor God in what we do? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's what you're doing at work. Maybe it's at school. But is my life in my actions honoring God? Is it worship? Regardless of how we sing here, but is it worship? Does that make sense? So as you write this down on your piece of paper and you're listening God, give yourself an answer. This is where I need to focus in on this week. This is where I need to honor God and how I worship. This is what I need to do. Johann Sebastian Bach is arguably one of the greatest composers of all time. Categorically, you put him in there with Beethoven. And many people say he's the greatest of all time. Bach is an interesting figure in history. During the 1700s, he was born into a family. Of, he was the youngest of many, many children. I think he was 10 in all. His parents died. They were both dead by the time he was 10 years old. But the young kid had a great aptitude towards music, and so his brother brought him into his home, and the entire family was very musical, and his brother taught him piano and had a great influence in his life and made sure that he was going to school to learn the different parts of how to play the piano and how to compose music, and just immediately the professors and the teachers that he was around knew that he was a prodigy and began to put him in different situations where he could compose and play more music, and out of college and out of all the degrees that he was able to get, he got jobs with churches and orchestras and composing music for different people, but never really hit it big. He was popular. He was influential even in his teaching career, but didn't hit it big to the degree that he is today. At the age of 65, he passed away, almost completely impoverished, almost completely with nothing to his name. Even though he had a career and had experienced success at the end of his age, he was pretty much broke. It was only years later that people discovered some of his compositions. And they, those became popular, and today we hear them in our movies, in commercials, on the radio, and through different parts. Even even this Christmas, some of you are going to have music in the background as you eat, and you're going to hear some of his hymns and his songs put to music. Even as I was writing this, I looked up some of his music on my computer and listened to it as I was writing. And it was like, I'm not really good with identifying different compositions, but it was like immediately my mind went to different scenes, whether it was a Christmas experience or whether it was a Hallmark commercial It's everywhere. Bach is everywhere. The interesting thing is that when they took all of his compositions and they took all of his music and they decided to publish them, and that's when he became popular, never really tasting the fruit of all of his hard work and all of his compositions, at the end of every one of his pieces of music, he had the words SDG, which is Latin for to God be the glory. Now, why do we say this? he never experienced any of the fruit from his musical investment but you got to understand something about bach he was not writing for this audience he was writing for that one you understand he was not writing to impress us he was writing to glorify the lord and in your day-to-day activity You're living to glorify the Lord. You're working to glorify the Lord. You're going to school to glorify the Lord. There's your joy, there's your definite, and there's your peace applied. Make sense? Christ transcends fairness. Christ can't be controlled, and Christ gives you peace. Do you have peace this morning? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? On the Connect card you were given inside your worship folder, there are a couple of boxes, and one of the boxes there says, Today for the first time I asked Jesus to come into my life. And if that's you this morning, I want you to check that box. For others of you in this room, you never made your profession of faith public. You've never told people you're a Christian. And we do that here by being baptized. And if you've never been baptized before, I want to encourage you to check that box. And there's another box on there that says, I need a phone call from the pastor. And if you need to work through some stuff, hey, I'm here, and our other staff members and pastors and elders are here for you too. I'd encourage you to check that box. But take the steps that God is calling you to take. And if you're here this morning, your homework, your homework is, guys, what can I do this week to honor God in what I do? Make sense? This morning, as you see scattered around on the different tables, we have the elements uh, of communion. We have bread and wine, and we actually have some small cups because we ran out of, of cups in the first service. So many people took communion. And so on the table in the back and to the sides, what we're going to do in just a moment is I'm going to ask you to come forward and take a cup and take a piece of bread and go back to your seat. Communion is a symbol of what Christ has done. And as we celebrate Christmas, I can think of no better way to begin this Christmas season by celebrating all that Jesus has done. The, blood repre- the juice represents his blood that was shed for the sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, and the bread represents his body that was broken so that you and I might have peace with the Lord. And so I'm going to ask you to do three things this morning. First of all, the Bible calls us to prepare our hearts for taking communion by asking God to speak to us, maybe asking His forgiveness for something, repenting of something, or maybe you need to step out in the back and call somebody and say, hey, I forgive you, or ask for that forgiveness. But to make your heart right before the Lord. The second thing I am going to ask you to do is if you're not a Christian yet. Maybe you've never asked Christ to come into your life or you're investigating this. I want to ask you to hold off on taking communion. While this table is welcome to everyone, it's meaningless for those who don't know Jesus. So as you contemplate as others come, I want to ask you to reflect on the reality of what Christ did and the divinity and who He is and how He's called you to Himself and asking you to know Him in a personal way. And the third thing I want to encourage you to do is you're a parent, your child is with you this morning, and they don't know Jesus yet. I want to encourage you to not let your children take communion. And here's why, is that you're giving the example of the greatness of what these elements represent and the power of what the gospel can do in our life. It's something we did with our kids. So I'd encourage you to take them home today and explain to them the gospel by showing them communion this morning. And so as I pray in just a moment, the band is going to come, and you guys will keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed and pray, and as God leads you, you go to one of the tables, you take the elements back to your seat, and together as a church we'll take that, okay? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for loving us and thank you for the peace we have in you. Thank you for the hope we have in you and thank you for the fact that you've transcended all this fairness and you've, con- you've, taken, you've taken control and you can't be controlled. And so God, in these moments as we remember what you've done through the brokenness of your body and through the, through the forgiveness that you extend through your blood, I pray, God, that you would move, that you'd bring us into a deeper, more powerful place with yourself. And God, we would recognize the power of who you are and what you do. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the hope we have in you. And as we look at this candle in just a few moments, thank you for the peace that we have in Jesus. And so God, work in us now.